0: This is Matt Raymond from the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event, held on the National Mall Saturday, September 27th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend in person, you can still participate online. These podcasts with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my honor to talk with the award-winning news reporter Kimberly Dozier. She started her journalism career right here in Washington, D.C., where I'm sitting, covering Congressional policy. To date, she has reported for numerous outlets, including Voice of America, The Washington Post, BBC, and currently CBS, where in 2003, she served as the chief correspondent covering the Iraqi war. In 2006, while on assignment in Iraq, Ms. Dozier was critically injured in a car bomb attack, which killed her two-person crew and several others. Her new book, Breathing the Fire, details her experience and her road to recovery. Ms. Dozier, uh, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Well, we're very much looking forward to your appearance at the National Book Festival September 27th. Why do you think it's important to participate?
1: I've been trying to get the story out to as many people out there about what the combat injured go through, and that is essentially what my book is all about. I didn't know the journey, and I had reported on the war in Iraq on the ground for three years. I didn't really understand it. I couldn't understand it until I went through it. And also people who've gone through it, troops who've gone through it, um, I've had caregivers read my book and come back to me and say, you know, yeah, that's what it was like. Or I've had people from the outside who thought they understood say to me, you know, the, the troops never told us about the debates between the doctors in their hospital room about what to do next. They didn't talk about the pain. They didn't talk about the the painkiller soup, they didn't talk about the survivor guilt, um, all the things that you go through. I think a lot of Americans, they see the war in Iraq, they see the war in Afghanistan on television, but they're not living through it. Less than 1% of this country is actually involved in fighting and prosecuting those wars. Mm -hmm. So for the majority, it's something distant from them, and I'd like them to go through it like I did, live it, breathe it, at least through a book, because then you understand how important those conflicts are and why you should care.
0: It seems like such a personal topic, so the act of writing the book is uh, an act of giving back, I suppose.
1: Personal, um, yeah. One of the the things about the book that a lot of people tell me is, you were so honest, and then they kind of look at me with this mixture of shock and horror, and a little bit of respect. And that always makes me worry. What part did I write down there that shocked you that you can't believe I put in print? Um, There's so much of um, what you go through as a patient, as a trauma patient, that really, you know, rips open your soul. And I I guess I tried to put that in in print. Um, The things like when you are locked in a hospital bed and you can't move and you're dependent on other people for almost everything it's it's partly humiliating it's partly um it makes you so grateful and it gives you a brand new perspective on anyone who's going through something like that from from here on out i will never look at um you know my my mother who just passed away. She spent the last year in a hospital bed in pain. I never would have understood unless I went through the same thing. And when you put that kind of stuff in print, um, it is like bearing your soul to the masses.
0: And after an experience like this, how do you return to work? I mean, was there ever a time where you considered uh, a different career doing something else? Or was it natural?
1: Never, (laughs) never. Um, It's part of, recovery, part of becoming a survivor and not a victim, is going back to what you used to do before. Yes, the experience changes you. Um, I like to say that it, it it burns away some parts of you, but it reinforces others. Um, and you've got to be able to go back to doing what you did before just to prove that you're well to yourself, to other people. And and also there's just the basic, the, the, the the stubbornness that helped me get through the recovery process, which is much longer than just the couple of months in the hospital bed. It's the whole, in my case, learning to walk again and learning to run again, um, you know, learning to walk with balance. Um, that stubbornness also drives you to say, I am not going to let um, a car bomb and those who blew it up stop me from returning to my life's work. And for me, my life's work was covering crises, mostly in the Middle East, but anywhere in the world. I'm not going to stop that because of them.
0: What were some of the particular challenges you faced uh, either in your recovery process or in getting back to work?
1: Other people's preconceptions or misconceptions about trauma patients. Um, A lot of people, you know, in the beginning, you do need other people for absolutely everything. You need your family, your loved ones, um, the doctors, the physiotherapists. But the doctors, the physiotherapists, the nurses, they know from this whole process that there comes a time, and it's pretty early on, when they've got to start letting you do for yourself. Otherwise, you never literally get back on your own feet. Um, And your family doesn't know when to pull back. They keep wanting to wrap you up in cotton wool. So you you almost have to you know cut the ties all over again. It's like going from teenager to adulthood all over again. The other hard part is then once you recovered, you fought so hard to get back to normal. Then um, I mean to this day, I run into people, sometimes friends, often strangers, who have these preconceptions about what it is to be a trauma survivor. They assume that you are still in pain and they almost seem they have this romantic notion that you're living with pain every day but you triumph over it and therefore they respect you for that. When you tell them, as in my case, sorry I don't have any pain, um, they almost seem a little bit disappointed sometimes. Hmm. And then the other thing is they expect you to continue to be haunted by, uh, for instance, the survivor guilt that I felt in the first months after the bombing. Mike colleagues, Paul Douglas and James Brolin, were killed. Yeah. Captain Funkhauser, um, James Alex Funkhauser, who we were following that day, and his translator Sam, also cut down by the car bomb. And, and it took a long time to get through that, but you do work through that and you move beyond it and you live your life to honor them. You don't continually mourn them or feel guilty about it. You've got to get to the next level where you try to turn this into something positive. I have tried to get to that, and people don't expect you to be there yet. They, they don't even uh, actually understand the journey. They, they kind of see you as frozen in time at that moment of the tragedy.
0: Again, the, the process of writing this, uh, this book, intensely personal. W- were there any things while going through this that you learned about yourself, perhaps, that were unexpected or surprising to you? Mm,
1: um, that stubborn streak that I would always sort of apologize for, I realized was one of the major things that got me through this. Uh, that, that little um, teenage rebellious streak that some of us um, still have into adulthood, that, that when I was in a hospital bed in stool after they, I had both of my femurs shattered and I had burns from my hips to my ankles, and um, they'd just driven these titanium rods into my femurs, and a doctor told me, I uh, was trying to be very realistic, but um, I didn't want to hear what he had to say, which was, you know, we've put those rods in, but there's so much damage to your legs. We don't know if you'll ever walk properly again. And that made me furious. Now, maybe he knew what he was doing. Maybe it was a little reverse psychology, but it would be months before I could prove him wrong. And I was, I was, so I was both grief-stricken and angry with him for telling me this. Then again, those months later, that helped drive me in physiotherapy. Oh, you think I'm not going to walk again? Uh Uh-huh. Watch this. And I had physiotherapists who became partners in crime saying, yeah, okay, try this, and then try some more, and then do some more. And that part of my personality uh, really helped
0: Have have there been issues of post-traumatic stress, and and has this book or or talking about this book and talking about your experience helped you to deal with that?
1: I've learned a lot about post-traumatic stress. Um, I did not develop it. I had grief. I had all of the normal things that you have after a traumatic event. Um, Post-traumatic stress includes everything. It's it's eight or ten symptoms um, that make up the dsm-4 diagnosis it includes things like hypervigilance uh sleep disturbances flashbacks nightmares now i had all of those things in the first month or so Mm -hmm. after the bombing and what i was told later is that's normal it's only when those symptoms continue uh, after that first month and haunt you that's when you're diagnosed with post-traumatic stress now, what I did, what helped me, and I've tried to stress to people um, because I don't mind talking about it, um, especially since everyone assumes I have PTSD. I like to educate them about the fact that I don't. But uh, what helped me avoid getting it was talking about the incident. I was talking about everything I could remember hmm. uh, and how I felt about it from the moment I opened my eyes in Langstuhl, when I still had a tube down my throat because I was intubated. Um, because they'd done brain surgery, take shrapnel out of my head, and they they had me on all sorts of oxygen, et cetera. Um, I asked for a pen and paper, and I was writing about what I could remember. For me, working through all of that early on helped exercise a lot of the worst memories. And then I went on to write a book and rewrite it and rewrite it. I rewrote the first five or six chapters, um, oh, gosh, five or six times. Mm-hmm. And that is all part of what psychologists, therapists tell you you should do to make sure a memory that's haunting you doesn't keep haunting you. It worked for me. Well,
0: in your book, of course, you talk not only about uh, your experience in Iraq, but also your rise in uh, journalism network broadcasting. Mm. Tell us a little bit about how you got started.
1: Rise. More like a more like a slog and a crawl. <laughs> um, you know, people see you on TV as a, a, a network correspondent. You know, the lighting's great, and and uh, they have no idea. First of all, you're you're usually standing on a, a rooftop um, among scattered garbage, um, and we just don't show you that part. <laughs> but um, just the process of getting there, through my whole career, I was told over and over. I mean, I started in print, as you mentioned, um, covering. Congressional issues on Capitol Hill and I sort of backed into TV. I Was a freelance reporter in Cairo Egypt went there with a little bit of money a grant that I won from Wellesley College where I had gone as a student undergrad and I begged my way into jobs And I was just the same place that wouldn't give me the time of day. The Washington Post would not give me an interview when I was a congressional reporter um, before I went to Cairo, Egypt. Mm -hmm. I land on the ground in Egypt two months after landing there. I'm freelancing for the Washington Post. I've got the lead story, and they've changed maybe three words in my copy. So there I was on the front page of the Washington Post. I had, had no business being there, but it was all a matter of, where I was in the world I'd gone to a place where they needed someone so time and again I tried to put myself in the right position and I just didn't take no for an answer and I you know trying to get onto tv I was told wrong looks too old too late wrong voice bad delivery no your writing's not good enough and I just kept saying yeah okay um let me try again and try again and try again. And with Baghdad, I ended up with the assignment that nobody else wanted. Uh, 2003, when I finally got promoted to network, the war was over. The stars went back to the States. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of our top foreign correspondents in the London Bureau, they didn't want to do that job. So I put my hand up I said, I'll do it. And I started staying and staying for really long shifts Mm -hmm. until... I lived two-thirds of the year there, and for me, as a reporter who'd been in the Middle East, um, I loved it. And for me, as a brand-new network TV person, I was getting to work with a rotating feast of producers and learning from each one of them. I was getting to hone my craft with, you know, five to seven million people watching a night.
0: Who are some of the role models or, or people in the field who have been inspirational to you?
1: Well, uh, Christiane Amanpour always comes to mind. Mm. Early on, she was uh, in all of those places I wanted to be, and she was all the things they said you couldn't be on American television. Oh, she doesn't wear enough makeup. She's got a funny out. uh, uh, She's got a funny accent. She didn't care. She just put her head down and worked. Mm. And um, other ones were. Leslie Stahl, Diane Sawyer, people asking tough questions and, you know, I just naturally gravitated to those women role models. I didn't think about the fact that there weren't many women at that time doing this sort of job. Um, I went to Wellesley College. Um, My role models were, our professors were half and half. So I, I didn't think as much about Gender issues. A uh-huh. lot of people have said, "Wow, isn't it amazing you're a woman doing this job?" And I kind of look at them, saying, "Most of my role models for the past twenty years have been women. Where have you been? Uh-huh. There are lots of us out there uh-huh. doing this kind of job, both in the reporting field at the high levels in the United States and in war and crisis zones,
0: particularly in in." Areas of uh, dangerous assignments, though, in in, uh, parts of the world where there are cultural differences, do you find that there are unique challenges or demands uh, that women reporters face?
1: There are in that some of the male leaders, Arab leaders, will treat you differently than they will treat um, a male reporter. Um, They will... Sometimes treat a male reporter more as an equal, but sometimes a woman will get an interview because of the whole chauvinist thing. You know, like, I, I've gotten interviews because um, I've I've found out later that such and such a Palestinian official had told Yasser Arafat, for instance, "Oh no, you want to see her? She's a cute blonde." Not fair. <laughs> and I never would describe myself that way, but hey, I got in and got an exclusive with Yasser Arafat, whereas other friends of mine have. Um, gotten into, say, a a remote U.S. Marine base in Afghanistan because the guys felt like they wanted guys around, but they didn't want to have to make special arrangements for women. There are no separate showers, no separate bathrooms, that sort of thing. So sometimes it's a plus, sometimes it's a minus. I can go into a woman's kitchen in an Arab household and hang out with the women there and find things out that a man never could. Hmm. So, so it, you know, there, there are trade-offs. It, sometimes the chauvinist wor- chauvinism works for you. And sometimes it works against you.
0: Why do you think it's important for reporters to be on the ground in a war zone? I, I think most people would rather not be there and, and preserve their own safety. Why is it important to be there?
1: There's really no other way to get an accurate picture of what's going on on the ground than to be there. Otherwise, everything you're getting is being filtered through someone else's opinion, someone else's point of view. We found our reporting in Iraq hampered that way. Uh, Once we couldn't go out as much ourselves, we would have to send out our fixers, our translators, our Iraqi staff, teach them to try to be reporters to tell us what's going on. But they didn't have years of training at trying to be a clear lens. And often we would get back reporting that was very shaded, and you'd have to ask very careful questions to see where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you send a, a Sunni Iraqi to a Shiite neighborhood, you're going to get a certain point of view. Um, there's some some nuances that they might not pick up, and that's what started happening with our reporting from Iraq. It was you tried to gather as many of these disparate, shaded points of view and put them together. And see if you could figure out um, a clearer picture. It, kind of like, kind of like looking at an impressionist painting, trying to see the pattern and detect shapes from the pattern. Mm.
0: Now you mentioned Yasser Arafat before, and, and obviously you've interviewed dozens of newsmakers: General Petraeus, Secretary of State Rice, Jerry Adams. Is there any one or two interviews in particular that stand out, and and why?
1: <laughs> you know. Of all things, one of the most amazing interviews I've ever had, I never expected this, Um, the early show asked me to interview Christopher Reeve when he was visiting Israel. He was visiting a medical institution to talk about uh, breakthroughs in spinal research. Of course, uh, Christopher Reeve was paralyzed. Um, He has since passed away. This man could... Barely move um, his own head, but he had this energy that radiated off of him. This amazing sense of uh, positive will. That he was not going to be defeated by this. And at the end of the interview, with the cameras off. He said he he wanted to show me what he'd found he could do. And through sheer, I don't know, force of will, he managed to pick up one of his arms. This is a man who's a quadriplegic. Mm. Pick up one of his arms and make his fingers move. Mm. And scientists couldn't explain it. His doctors couldn't explain it. He was hanging on to that hope that someday either he would walk again or whatever he was managing to do, someone else would figure out how to make that go a step further, that's one of those um, images I carry with me, wow. that sheer determination. He was not going to be defeated.
0: Now, before CBS News, you were chief correspondent for WCBS uh, TV uh, in New York, their uh, Middle East bureau in Jerusalem, and you uh, still maintain a home there, I, I understand. What have been some of your firsthand experiences with with people there and, and that place? And do you have any... Uh, you know can you dispel perhaps some people's misconceptions about uh, people there
1: what people don't understand about israel and the palestinian territories is that there are places you can have your guard up that you must have your guard up and then there are places that are you know just like just like walking around dc you know there are neighborhoods that are not so safe and there are neighborhoods where you can just relax with the kids, mm-hmm. and and that's what it's like in the Middle East. Um, it's it's there are wonderful cafes in Ramallah that you can hang out, listen to fantastic um, Western Middle Eastern fusion music, have amazing food, and talk with intellectuals who've studied at Sorbonne and Harvard, and and when I try to. Tell Americans that, you know, they all they see, unfortunately, is that sliver that we often put on TV of violence, of things exploding, because, you know, bad news travels fast. And I'd like them to see the wider um, view of the Middle East, because I think if they could see the similarities between that culture, those countries, this country, we'd better understand how some of our actions are perceived overseas and we'd be better or more attentive at um, choosing our leaders and thinking about our next steps in that region.
0: Now we expect uh, well over 100,000 people at the Book Festival this year. We had uh, about 120,000 last year and quite a few of those people are young people. And I'd like to ask uh, What kind of advice do you give to people if they're interested in pursuing a career path similar to your own? Obviously, it sounds like determination is a big factor.
1: Yeah, don't take no for an answer. Uh, Try to listen to some of the constructive criticism, but uh, keep moving in the right direction. Don't let someone else crush your dream. In my case, uh, what helped was I got some great advanced training on the ground, I, I learned some of my craft in Washington, D.C., and then I kept seeking out mentors wherever I went. Cairo, Egypt, uh, there was Carol Murphy, a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Washington Post. She was one of my teachers. Laurie Kassman, who was the bureau chief at the time for Voice of America. Uh, each of these people, there's a, a great producer named Peter Bluff at the London Bureau for CBS News, he helped, helped me learn to write, um, All these different people I listened to, I sought out their advice, I sought out their criticism. Especially the higher up you get on the ladder, people will stop telling you what they think you're doing wrong or what they think could be tweaked to make you better. Keep seeking that out and keep pushing for that excellence and understand the best attitude to have is that you are always a student. You've always got something new to learn.
0: Well, Kimberly Dozier, the book is Breathing the Fire before you're off to uh, the next breaking story. I wonder if you could let us know what is, uh, what's coming next for you, uh, any future books in the works, perhaps.
1: Future books? Well, I've got to get out uh, back overseas and uh, re- restart the adventure, so mm-hmm. to speak. Right now I'm working out of the Pentagon, working in Washington, D.C., trying to see how people make the decisions out of this city before I get back on the ground where we're at the other end of the, the far end of the whip yeah. and, uh, you're, you're at the sharp end and seeing what happens at, well, to the people on the ground.
0: And you, you intend to do that, to go back.
1: Uh, I've been trying to go back since last year. My poor yeah. bosses ha, have, have more sympathy for them than for me. <laughs> right.
0: Well, Kimberly Dozier, thank you so much for your time today
1: great to talk to
0: you and we will be very excited to hear more from you at the national book festival that is saturday september 27th on the national mall from 10 a.m to 5 p.m as always free and open to the public for more details and a complete list of participating authors visit www.loc.gov slash from the library of congress in washington this is matt raymond thank you for listening